0: Well, good morning. What an awesome time of worship. So, I, what, would, what would change in our lives, and this is kind of a scary thought, if people could read your mind? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, what if you could read other people's minds? What, what would be different? Is extremely scary. Uh, uncomfortable? Uncomfortable? And I am so thankful that that isn't the case. I, I think, though, I wonder in my marriage what would be different if um, if Courtney could read my mind, if she knew what I was thinking and I knew what she was thinking. I think that they were, there were times, there have been times throughout our, our time together that if she just... If she just understood how I was thinking, I think it would have avoided uh, arguments, conflict. Uh, and I think most of us in this room maybe could agree. I, I, I Some examples here, of like, so maybe Courtney's thinking that I'm thinking about other girls, but really I'm thinking about Buzz Lightyear was in denial of being a toy, but still froze when humans are around. That would cross my mind. Or uh, I'm thinking about maybe other girls, but I'm thinking my dog understands more human words than I understand barks. Uh, perhaps it's uh, I, I, she thinks i thinking about girls or another woman uh, I'm really just thinking that I'm sick and tired of trying to find ammo <laughs> truth I bet he's thinking about another woman and I'm thinking if oil is made from dinosaur fossils and plastic is made from oil then plastic dinosaurs are made from real dinosaurs <laughs> let that sink in <laughs> what would happen if those around you could read your mind and what happens when the reality of the fact that when you think about things, maybe it's, it's not as innocent as that. Maybe you do think about the woman that you passed in town. Maybe you do think about the guy that was in your workout class. Maybe you do think about the movie that you saw or the page that was on the internet or the addiction, whatever it is. Like what happens, what happens if those around you knew what you were thinking? our thoughts are without a doubt the most personal possession we have. It's extremely intimate. It's the only thing that I really have 100% control over or have control over exposing. You don't know what I'm thinking unless I tell you what I'm thinking. Now, there are times where maybe my face tells a story, but then there are times where my face is saying something completely different than my thought. Personal. As a church, we we talk a lot about how we behave. We spend an extremely uh, large amount of our time talking about the way that we should live, doing the things that we should do, walking the way that we should walk, talking the way that we should talk. And and that's that we should like that's important stuff. We can't overlook that. The last few weeks, Paul has addressed those exact things in his letter to the Ephesians walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Paul understands that walking is doing, doing is being, being is behaving. This is important. Now, he's quick to emphasize why we do the things that we do. like like he puts credit where credit is due and we we shared a quote last week I think it's worth sharing again uh, from uh, J. Vernon McGee he says it's interesting that the religions are saying to a dying world do something and be somebody where God says just the opposite be somebody and do something and so what, what Paul is trying to articulate is because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ we have the ability to walk a little bit differently to talk a little bit differently to behave a little bit differently and so we, we've engaged in that conversation. We, we started four or five weeks ago, and we learned that through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed, and because we were redeemed, we're recreated. Paul then reinforces some arguments or some, some things that we should be doing as a part of our uh, redemption and recreation. Uh, then he redirects us, redirects us a little bit last week in the text, and then this week, he's gonna, he's gonna go into a topic that is extremely uncomfortable, and we are going to talk about how we think. As it turns out, It's not enough to be redirected or to behave. We should at least acknowledge the way that we think. Churches don't like to talk about the way we think. Or better yet, I don't like to talk about the way that we think. I'm extremely uncomfortable with this. Extremely uncomfortable. And, and as I started thinking through, like, why is this so much tension in this sermon? Like, why, why don't we talk more about it? And I think it's—first, it's, it's just complicated. Like, for me to talk about the way that I think, the way that you think is complicated, because I have no idea how you think. Maybe I'm the only person in the world who has poor thoughts Sometimes. Maybe I'm the only person who, who, when someone cuts me off in traffic, I want to ram my car into theirs. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's my thoughts. And so, for us to talk about the way we think because it's so, it's so complicated, I just, I'd rather just avoid it. Or, or maybe we don't talk about it because it's not quantifiable. What does that mean? I think we as Christians do a really good job of walking the walk and looking a certain way and behaving a certain way when our brain, our minds, our thoughts are in a completely different atmosphere. Like, I, I know how to make this look good. I know how to behave in church. I know the right things to say. I know when to stand in church and when to sit down. I know when to say amen and when not to say amen. I can, I can look at it. Right, but, but what happens when I am looking and walking the part, but my brain is somewhere else? It's hard to quantify. And so for us to have this conversation, you could say, I'm good. And you know what? You look good, right? You behave well, but your minds are somewhere else. It's not quantifiable. But really, I can get over those two things. The reason I really don't want to talk about this because it's personal. It's really, really personal. If I begin to talk about the way that I think, then I risk exposing things about myself that terrify me. If you begin to talk about the way that you really think, you risk exposing some things about yourself that I'm sure you're not comfortable with. We don't like to talk about it. And I wish we didn't have to. But in typical Paul fashion, he addresses the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And that's what he dives into here in Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll begin in verse 17 and just kind of work our way down. So, Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, stop and talk about what what Paul is saying here. What the Gentiles do. So that's not the entire population of Gentiles, what Paul is referring to is those men and women who have not yet stepped into a relationship with Christ. So so these are the people who have not yet been redeemed and recreated. They are outside the walls of the church, and Paul is saying you should not act like them in the futility, in the pointlessness, in the uh, helplessly confused of their thinking. You, me, we are called not just to act differently, to think differently. Verse 18. They, the Gentiles, again, those that don't know Jesus, are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They are darkened, separated, ignorant, and their hearts have been hardened. Do you know what's worse than someone fumbling around and failing It's someone fumbling around and failing and they have no idea because they are darkened, ignorant, and their hearts are hard. Verse 19 having lost all sensitivity, again, because of the hardness of their heart, having lost all sensitivity, sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So, so because they are separated from God, because their hearts have been hardened, they begin to look for things within the world. They, they look for, for ways to, to, to fill their heart through the ways of the world. That's an extremely, extremely dangerous Proposition. Paul addressed this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying, here it is, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. So before our relationship with Jesus Christ, our hearts were darkened, they were hardened, and we were doing everything that we could to fill it. And because of the nature of our hearts prior to our relationship with Jesus, we end up doing some not-so-good things. This is an extremely dangerous proposition. This is extremely dangerous. You want to know why? But Because humanity in sin is never satisfied with sin. Humanity in sin is never satisfied. Because what happens is, is that feeling that you get when you sin, that that rush of adrenaline, or or maybe just the the, the physical pleasure, it, it eventually fades. The high eventually wears off. And so what do you have to do? You sin again to recreate the feeling. And because you have learned, you've conditioned yourself to um, uh, handle the sin, you have to step deeper into sin to get the same rush that you once had before. Humanity in sin is never satisfied with sin. Temporary fixes always require constant renewal. Temporary fixes... No matter how great of a fix they are, temporary fixes always require constant renewal. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how I, um, I, I, I bought a truck. It, it's somewhat of a beater truck that requires me to do some work on it which is a, that's a dangerous proposition right there. Like it, it's been a mess. And so, so what happens is, is when the truck does not start, which has turned out to be quite often, uh, I, I do the two things that I know how to do, and when the, they don't work, because it's never the two things I know how to do, I make a couple of phone calls. And typically, that phone call is to Pastor Dustin, uh, who uh, always, to his credit, drops what he's doing, comes over to my house and makes sure that I don't rip apart my truck for something silly which is typically what it is. So the last time he came over, uh, the the reason the truck wouldn't start is because the battery wasn't uh, connected to the terminal properly, uh, which I guess I should have known. Um, but, but, but we fixed it by, by scraping the terminal of the battery, putting the cable back on, and tightening. Well, that was a temporary fix. And so what happened is, is the truck ran for a little while, and then it would not start. And so I'd have to get a wrench out, uh, a knife, and scrape the terminal, put it back on, and then I would drive on. And it got to the point where it was happening every time I had to start my truck. Because I wasn't fixing the problem permanently, it required constant renewal. Paul understands that He understands that living a life away from Christ requires the person, requires the heart, because it's a temporary fix to be constantly renewed, and that's a dangerous proposition. He says that, however, talking to the readers, the church, us. That, however, is not the way a life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is. Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire. So don't forget the fact that you have been redeemed and recreated to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives, in your lives, that there is an obligation to at least acknowledge where our minds go, to at least talk about the way we think, because, as Paul illustrates here, it matters. It matters what you think, it matters how you think. It matters. Verse 24. And to put on. So, so, so once you have acknowledged where your mind is, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we'll, we'll come back to verse twenty-four here in a couple of minutes. It matters what you think. It matters how you think, because what you think and how you think, whether you realize it or not, is directly correlated to the condition of your heart. It matters what you think because how you think is directly correlated to the condition of your heart. Proverbs says, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. Paul says, because you have stepped into this relationship with Jesus Christ, you you should act differently, walk differently, talk differently, and oh, by the way, you should think differently. Your thoughts matter. My thoughts matter. And I would even go as far as to say that our thoughts, your thoughts, my thoughts matter more than the way I behave. That's tough. Jesus was constantly battling the Pharisees. Constantly battling the Pharisees. The Pharisees walked the walk. They talked the talk. They looked exactly how they were supposed to look, but because their minds and their hearts weren't in line with where Jesus was taking them, they were always at odds. Because it matters what we think. It matters. Good or bad. It's important. So, so even if we can get to a place where we can acknowledge the fact that our thoughts matter, I think it's still for me the question remains: Well, how in the world do I control it? There, there are times where I do really, really good, and there are some days where it's really, really, really bad. So, how do we fix it? What does that look like in our lives? And so so, so I think if we talk about rethinking the way we think, I think part of it is our responsibility, and the other part of it is Jesus' promise. And so we talk about the thing that I am supposed to do, I think that we should do our best to think on purpose, to to intentionally think on purpose. So so what does that mean? How many days do we go without thinking about Jesus? And maybe for you, that's never. But maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe you think about Jesus uh, between 10.30 and 11.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings and that's it. What happens when we think on purpose? What happens when we open our Bible every day and we give, we give God just, just a few moments? Well, what happens if we begin to intentionally pray and talk to God? Well, what changes about the way that we think? Now, I think that's important, but I don't believe That's the only thing that we can do. Because if if that's all that we're doing, we're carrying too much of this load. So we talk about the way that we think. I think that what we do more often than not, at least what I do, I think we underestimate who Jesus is and what he is doing. And so so think on purpose. Don't underestimate Jesus. Don't underestimate him. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 24, I said we'd come back to it And put on the new self Created to be Like God In true righteousness And holiness Paul wrote to the Galatians He said, I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live But Christ lives in me The life I now live in the body I live by the faith of the Son of God Who loved me and gave Himself for Me think on purpose, and you don't underestimate Jesus. Because the promise that he gives us in this text is that when we allow him to redeem us, when we open the door to be recreated, that, that he creates us to be like God, righteous and holy. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow. A tough pill to swallow. That's one of those verses, again, that makes me really, really uncomfortable. So, so we as a Wesleyan church, we, we are a part of what would be referred to in the old days as the holiness movement. We're a holiness church There are a lot of misconceptions About what it means to be righteous and holy A lot of misconceptions and so, so the best way that I know how to illustrate it Or how it was explained to me That just kind of made light bulbs go off Is, is if you think about If you think about your house Our house So Drawing the house here the best I can And a window here Window here Window here Maybe a chimney, some smoke, got kind of a pathway, you know? Uh, and so you think about your house, this particular house, our house has four rooms. I'm just gonna show it here so we know how to divide up the house. And so, so typically in most houses, in my house, maybe in yours, uh, the front room is always kind of the, the cleanest room. Because if, if someone ever pops by our house, I at least have a space where it looks like I have everything put together, when in reality, the rest of my life is chaotic. And so I I try to keep this kind of tidied and clean so that if someone were to come by I have a place to put them. It's not perfect, but it's better than the rest of the house. And then past the, the living room, you have your kitchen. Now, this is a room where typically you only invite a certain subset of the people into this room. We have to have, you have to have a better relationship, a closer relationship to invite them into your kitchen. That's when a real relationship begins. You wouldn't invite like the door-to-door salesman or the, the cable guy or whatever to come in and hang out in your kitchen. Some of you might, uh, but, but, but I, I wouldn't, right? Like I would, I would draw a line and, and we'd have coffee made in here, but this is mine because more often than not, my kitchen is a mess. My kitchen's a mess. Uh, there, there are plates piled up. Uh, the, the floor has food on it. The table hasn't been wiped up after the last meal. It just doesn't look good all the time. But it, it, still, it's, it's some place where, yes, if a relationship is there, people would be invited into the kitchen. Now, the, last, the third room here is a living room. It's a TV room. Uh, again, uh, you have to be a pretty close connection to me for you to be invited into that kind of upper family room. Because typically, this is reserved for the family. And so this room is always dirty. It's never picked up. Blankets are thrown around. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed. There's DVDs stacked up everywhere. Toys everywhere. Uh, it also, you know, there's there's some you know some movies that, that, you know, are not like, they're not bad movies, you know, like when I'm th- but like, they're not like a super appropriate movies. Maybe there's some rated R stuff in there that you're not super proud of. And so you want to limit who sees those. And so, so You keep people, for the most part, out of that living room. The last room, though, it's the bedroom. This is the room that no one, no one goes into except you and your spouse. It's the most intimate, the most private room in the entire place. This is where you can hide your messes, your wrecks, your scrapbooks, your picture books, all the things that, you know, you don't want to throw away but you're not really proud of, that's where you store in that room. It holds the deepest, darkest parts of your life, and because of that, you want to keep it segmented from everyone, everyone, besides the most intimate person that you, you relate to, your wife, your husband. So, that's the house. So imagine with me, one day you're sitting in your living room, hanging out, just knock on the door. You answer the door, and you're, oh, it's Jesus, bizarre. Like, why would Jesus be knocking on your door? Uh, something, though, tells you that you should invite Jesus into your house, and so you do. You, you open the door, and you invite him in, and it's, it's really cool, because Jesus is in your house, and this is awesome. Like, you get the warm and fuzzies that you're actually interacting with the Savior of the world, and you begin to talk and develop and cultivate a relationship. You bring him out a, a cup of coffee, and you know, you bring him out the WWJD coffee mug, because, you know, it's Jesus, and you want to look good. And, and so you're talking, and everything is going great, and, and really, you're happy if it was just Staying like this but, but he looks And he asks what's in this room he, he asks what's over there And you say well well, Jesus It is my kitchen He says well I would like to go see what you have in there And, and, and you, you resist Because the dishes are piled up The trash is overflowing It is a mess You are afraid if he sees what mess is in the kitchen That he's going to turn around and leave He's going to walk away He's going to run away from you But he persists He doesn't insist, but he persists. And so you finally give up and say, okay, you're not going to like what you see, but you're welcome to go in. And so he goes into your kitchen, and you're kind of scratching your head, watching to see how he reacts. And to your surprise, he starts cleaning your dishes, he takes out your trash. And before you know it, your floor is clean, the table is wiped off, and your kitchen is more spotless than it's ever been in your entire life. Like, this is amazing! Holy cow, why did I do this sooner? This is incredible! And you start to talk some more, and and he asks, what's up here? And all of a sudden, the, the, the happiness that you felt here is wiped away because you know if he goes up there, there is no doubt he's gonna run away. It's a wreck up there. It is a mess. But he persists. Not insist, persist and you let him see it same thing that happens in the kitchen, happens in the living room he now has cleaned your house in a way that you didn't know was possible but you still keep him at arm's length, a little, just a little bit you've given him three-fourths and you kind of know what's coming but you dread the question he says, Aaron, what, what's in there? you say, well, Jesus, I, that's my room. I cannot let you in there. This is, this is where the deepest, darkest parts of my life are. And I know if you go in there, I'm going to disappoint you so much that you're going to turn and run. I know when you see the things that I have done, the memories that I have held up in there, when you see the scars and the baggage that I have, you're gonna be done with me. And I really like what you have done in my life and I don't want you to be done with me so I'm not gonna allow you to go into this room, Jesus. I don't think it's a good idea. But he persists, he pushes, he nudges and you finally say tearfully, go ahead but I know what's gonna happen. And he walks into your room and he begins just kind of going through stuff and your head is held down, tears are streaming Because you know that you're disappointing him. (laughs) But then he begins to do the same thing in this room that he's done in the three others. He doesn't judge. He doesn't doesn't condemn. He doesn't yell. He doesn't say, What what are you doing with this? Why do you. He just cleans it up. (laughs) And in an instant, an instant not just one two three but your entire house is clean we talk about what sanctification is or holiness is when you let Jesus here into the door that's justification you're a part of the family of God you have been saved you have been redeemed you have been recreated this is important letting Jesus up here that's sanctification and what happens is when you allow Jesus to go deeper and deeper into your life or or your heart all of a sudden he appears in places that you didn't expect to find him and all of a sudden the thoughts that you had yesterday the uncontrollable thoughts the urges the rage the fear whatever it is like you begin to replace those with thoughts of your savior because he is all consuming in your life I'm afraid that we as a church we've, gotten, we've become satisfied With allowing Jesus into our living room and, and, and if this is you Praise God that he's even in your house I'll see you in heaven It's going to be amazing That's important but, but if this is where you keep him If this is as far as you allow him into your life Then you are missing out On the greatest thing this world has to offer You are missing out on seeing how your life was intended to be. You are missing out on love and joy and hope and peace that this world cannot provide. But it requires you to not underestimate the cleaning power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what happens, I think, is when we keep Jesus here, we're trying to give Jesus our best— When in reality, the thing he desires most is our worst. And ironically, when you allow Jesus to have your worst, you're at your best. Church, it matters what you think, it matters how you think. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? So we're going to conclude here. Uh, I'm going to give you a shameless plug that I typically don't do, but I think it's important. We're going to conclude this series next week in Ephesians with what I think is the most controversial verse in the entire New Testament. You do not, do not want to miss it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to just gather here. That that you are a God who... (sighs) who isn't a living room acquaintance, but is is someone who desires to be in the deepest, darkest depths of our lives, our hearts, our souls. You are a God who who isn't just concerned with our actions, but but you want us to be cleansed from the inside out. You, You want our hearts to be pure, our minds to be pure. You want and you know what happens when we set our eyes on you, when we take our thoughts captive. Help us do that, Father. Help us give our lives to you so ho- holy and fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.